the heart of worship is our final lesson on the heart of worship. And so I love that subject of worship. Uh, it, uh, it just really does something to my soul. The heart of worship. We're going to have a few portion of scripture that we're going to get into tonight. The first portion of scripture that we're going to read is Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1 through 9, and then verse 12. And so tonight, the heart of worship, the fourth lesson on this topic is the direction of worship. The direction of worship. So this is our fourth lesson in this series. And tonight we will talk about the direction of worship. And so in Second Chronicles... Chapter 20, verse 1. The word of the Lord says, It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, there cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side, Syria. And behold, they be Hazazon, Tanner, which is Engedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. Somebody say, seek the Lord. And proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, Oh, Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen and in thy hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee. I love how these prayed and seek the Lord. There's a pattern here, and if we will get it, we will see a move of God like we've never seen it. Verse number seven, art not thou our God, who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend forever. And they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence for thy name is in this house and cry unto thee, in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. 
verse 12 says, Oh, our God, will thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. I don't know if it's our pride. I don't know if it's our ignorance. I don't know what it is that prevents us from praying this kind of way. Where we quickly go to the Lord and let him know how helpless we are. I'm not sure why we don't go before the Lord and let him know how helpless we are. God, this thing that's going on, I have no control over it. This thing that's going on, will you let it overtake me or steal my joy or pull me out of thy hand or get me on the wrong path? Will you allow this to happen to me, God? Because I can't do anything. I don't have the power, but you are the all-powerful God. You, you are the all-sufficient God. You are the all-knowing God. You can do it, but I can't, Lord. And if we ever want to see some moves of God, I believe that's what's missing, is how we approach the Lord to go and say, God, we need your help. But somehow when we approach God, it's almost like we go to him either because we're doubting or we might feel like we have a little something something to do with the outcome. We don't have anything to do with the outcome. Now, what we have something to do with, with is how we approach God. But the outcome doesn't belong to us. And I believe that if we will ever stop and realize the outcome is what God has control of, I think we'll approach him differently. But if somehow we're praying like we control the outcome, I think we pray differently. When you know God controls the outcome, you, you, you tend to leave the outcome to him. But a lot of times when we approach God, we approach God telling him what the outcome needs to be. So when we tell him what the outcome needs to be, then we pray differently. But when we say, God, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. I don't understand what I need to say or do in this particular situation. But thou know, God, because you know everything. And when I go like that and I say, God, I don't know how we'll get through this. But I know you know how we can get through this. I know you can take us through this. I know you know how to just make this right. And whatever it is that you can do, thy will be done. But if we try to control the narrative, what the outcome should be, how it should all work, I think it caused us to pray differently. Can you imagine parting of the Red Sea? I wonder what the prayer was like in some people's heart that day. Because I don't know how you can predict the outcome for that one. And sometimes we're praying, trying to tell God what the outcome needs to be. And that makes us pray differently. Jehoshaphat 
was terrified at the news, at the war that was coming their way. He was afraid. He was the king, and he was afraid. And you know us, can't let people see me shaking. Can't let people see me afraid. But we're learning something here from this influential king that I can be afraid of what's going on. I can, I can, I can, I can know that whatever is happening, I can't fix it. I don't have the way to get it right. But if we will all come together and we seek the Lord, the Lord can do it. I don't have to put on. As people came from all over Judah, Jehoshaphat gathered them together in the courtyard outside the temple. The nation sensed the gravity of the moment and listened as their king offered his desperate prayer. The king made clear that their hearts were turned in God's direction. And whenever we come together, we need to make sure our heart is turned towards God's direction. When we come together, it has to be purposeful. I turn myself towards you, Lord. I turn my attention towards you, Lord. Because if we really and truly believe that we're in dire need of him and we need to turn ourselves towards him, then that's what our action should demonstrate. The prayer and worship they were offering at the moment was aimed at the Lord. Jehoshaphat admitted they did not know what to do, but their eyes was on God. Can we get to that place where we can say, God, I don't know what to do, but I'm putting my eyes on you. I'm keeping my eyes on you because I don't know what to do in this instance. And I'm not even going to try to tell you like I know what the outcome needs to be. Because even in my mind, sometimes I can conjure up an outcome that I think may be right and it may be wrong. As his prayer came to the end, the attention of the people was still heavenward, and their ears were attuned to listen for God's voice. Then the spirit of the Lord moved upon a Levite named Jehaziel, and he began to prophesy. This is what he said. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but is God's. <clears throat> That's what will happen when we turn ourselves towards the Lord. If we will turn ourselves to the Lord and pray, he will tell you the answer. You don't need to tell him the answer. He will tell you the answer that he will fight that battle for you. But you have to believe that whatever outcome he wills, that's what you should be good with. The battle is the Lord's. And so we need to turn ourselves towards the Lord. As the prophecy went forth, the people fell on their faces and worshipped the Lord for his promised power, provision, 
and deliverance. To further demonstrate Jehoshaphat's priority of worship, early the next morning, he sent singers and musicians to lead the army into battle. So, the Lord didn't say there will be no battle. He said the battle is his. And so, the Lord says, the battle is mine. I will fight your battle. So they went in battle in spite of knowing that they were overmatched. They marched with their eyes upon the Lord. They moved forward in the direction of the enemy, though their hearts were turned in the in in the direction of God. They they were moving forward. We have to stop and look at that. When do we look to the Lord? even though we're going through our situations. You can go through your situation physically, but spiritually your eyes are on the Lord. And that's what God is looking to us to say, keep your eyes on me, because whatever you're going through, just put your eyes on me and everything will be all right. It's a lesson that is all throughout the Bible. Where, where, where else can we think of in the Bible when we put our eyes on God that it doesn't matter what's going on around you? Remember I said, I heard Brother Henry quoting this the other day in Sunday school. Remember what I said. When we walk away from God at any point in our life, what we did at that moment was make our situation bigger than God. Anytime any one of us And that doesn't mean I'm criticizing anyone. It just means I'm telling you what the secret sauce is to stay in God. If you just keep your eyes on God, no matter what you're going through, no matter how bad the situation is, no matter even if you did wrong, just put your eyes on the Lord and he will take you through that situation. A lot of times what happens is the situation is, is happening and we allow our flesh to dictate how we respond to the situation. What did Jehoshaphat did? The king, he didn't let flesh dictate. As a matter of fact, the first thing he did was kill the flesh. He, he called a fast and said, let's fast, let's pray, and let's worship God. Flesh has nothing to do with any of those three. So he knew we're not going to respond to this battle and to what we're going through in our flesh. We're going to respond to it by putting our eyes on Jesus, by worshiping Jesus, by calling on the name of Jesus, by praising him, by praying and calling. That's the way he taught them as their king to approach the situation. So every situation that you're going through, every situation that you're dealing with, You have to put your eyes on Jesus. And I'm telling you, it's just that simple. That the moment you decide that you're going to allow this problem to be bigger and stronger than your God, that's when you walk away. The moment you get to the place where you feel like God's not going to do nothing anyway. We're controlling, trying to control the outcome. Because what you think God should do, God is not doing. When you think God should do it, God is not doing it. And so that gives you so much 
anxiety and cause you to want to just walk away because you think God needs to act when you need him to act. So many people walk away from God because in their mind, if God didn't respond and I thought I was just at my wit's end, you don't know everything, but God knows everything. When you think you're at your wit's end, God says you got plenty to go. Oh, God, help us tonight. And so we can't take our eyes off Jesus no matter what's going on. If we do, that day will come where you find yourself saying, whatever happened? How did I find myself so far away from God? And the easy answer would be or will be you took your eyes off Jesus and you made your problem bigger than him. You made it like he couldn't fix it. You made it like there was no way he can get it together for you. Nobody can fix your problem better than Jesus. Nobody can clean up your mess better than Jesus. I'm telling you, we can make the biggest mess in the world, but if you will keep your eye on Jesus and keep on following him, even after you made your biggest mess, you will look back one day and realize, oh my God, how did he fix that? Oh my God, how did, how did he get that back on track? But think about it like this. This is how much we allow our flesh to get the best of us. Think about it like this. Even... When you went through or did something wrong as a child of God, it still wasn't worse than before you got saved. So if he saved you out of your sin, why do you think you're going to get in God? And he <laughs> Because trust me, it can't be any worse. Because when you're living for God, when you used to be a person in the world and you get saved and you start living for God, no matter what, you have the Holy Ghost now checking you. So everything you do wrong, the Holy Ghost checks you anyhow. So whether you're drinking, smoking, partying, the Holy Ghost is still checking you. You're fighting to just keep doing wrong because the Holy Ghost still checks you. And so just think, when you got saved the first time, you didn't have the Holy Ghost checking you. <laughs> so why would you give up on God now that you have the Holy Ghost checking you? Don't make good sense. The Lord defeated their enemy, and that was that. Listen to me. We are all worshipers. Nobody said one word. I got a nod from Mama. We are all worshipers. All of us, saved or unsaved, are worshipers. <laughs> Christians or non-Christian, we're all worshipers. Religion matters not in worship. The truth is, we worship someone or something because we are created as worshipers. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if you're in church or you're not in church. However you're living, you are going to worship something or someone. The difference between worshipers is not always the style or expression. The difference lies in the object of what you are worshiping. 
So we're all worshiping something. We're all worshiping somebody. So the question is, who are you worshiping or what are you worshiping? This is why I say all the time, when I worship the Lord and I praise him, I got to utter that name. Jesus, I worship you. Jesus, you are my king. Jesus, I adore you. Jesus, there is none like you. Oh, great God, I just want you to know that I love you, Lord Jesus. And, oh, God, I will bless the Lord, all my soul and all that is within me. I want to make sure I express that it's Jesus that I'm worshiping. I'm not just worshiping anything because everybody worships. Who are you worshiping or what are you worshiping? Everybody worships. I'm going to make sure you. Remember the lesson that we talked about when David's wife, Michal, saw him worshiping and, and, and thought, man, you're a king. Why did you do that in front of everybody? That was embarrassing to us. And David said, that wasn't embarrassing to me. I was worshiping the, the great God and creator that delivered me from my sins and brought me through. That's who I was worshiping. That's who I danced before. That's who I worship. I'm not worried about what anyone thinks of me. That's such a big thing that we got to get past. When will we get past how we express our worship to God? Doesn't matter how you worship because, again, what do I like to say? If someone is crazy enough or ignorant enough, I think ignorant is better, is ignorant enough to want to look at others as they worship, I don't know about that. You know what's going to happen to them? They're going to become barren. So only an ignorant person will worry about somebody else, how they worship, how they praise. They're ignorant. And so why would we even think and worry about someone that's ignorant when you're worshiping God? So why aren't we worshiping like we need to worship? Why aren't we saying, I can't wait to get into the house of God to worship him. I can't wait to get in that house. I'm going to worship today. Do we come and say, I'm going to worship today? Or we go and say, I want to hear the word today. It's good to hear the word, but the word goes for you. But when you worship, you give something directly to God. So it's all great to say, I want to hear the word. It's all great to want to be taught. It's great to want the word to get into your heart because you need the word. But that was for you. But when I worship, that's for God. When I praise his name, that's for God. When I exalt his name, that's for God. And that's how we have to think about it. When we come, we have to enter his gates with thanksgiving. Of course, we pray because we're giving him now something. We want to make sure God understands God. This is both ways. This is not just on me just getting from you. This is supposed, well, what did the preacher say tonight? We don't have anything to give him. Other than your worship, what can you give God? Because everything else he can do, he can't worship himself. So what 
You have to give him the only thing you can give him that's of any value is your worship. Everything else he can do or he has. So we got to loosen up ourselves and worship the Lord. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. True followers of Jesus Christ will worship him alone. Anything else is idolatry. So when we worship things or people, it's idolatry. We have to be careful when we worship to make sure we understand that our worship is unto the Lord Jesus Christ. This world is full of worshipers who offer worship to other gods and other things. It does not take long to find people worshiping pleasure. It does not take a detective to find those who worship at the altar of self. (laughs) Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, great portion of scriptures. (coughs) Paul wrote in verse 21, Romans chapter 1, because that when they knew God, They glorified him not as God. Now, it says because that when they knew God, it didn't mean the deep knowing God. Because when you read knowing, sometimes it's talking about real intimate understanding of who God is. In this particular case, it's just saying when they realize who God is, they did not glorify him as God. Neither were thankful but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Sometimes we wonder why people can't get it together. Sometimes we wonder why people can't see straight. When they realize who God really is or that God do exist and they didn't worship him, God says, I'm not going to try to force you. I'm not going to try to impress myself on you. I'm just going to leave you to yourself and let you go astray because you are a worshiper. You are a worshiper. And if you come to realize I'm God and you don't worship me, you're going to worship something else. We don't want God to allow us to go astray and worship something else. So we need to worship him. If we don't worship God, we're going to worship something or someone else. We can't help it. Something or someone else will be worshipped if we come to understand who God is. We realize who he is and we say, yeah, 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 it's okay. This is why we have people walking around. And so many people have made idols as their gods. They won't admit to it, but unfortunately, it's there. And until we get to the place where we start admitting that, you know, social media is an idol. My job is an idol. My money is an idol. 
My status in life is an idol. My children are my idol. My house is my idol. My car is my idol. And we can go on and on and on. If we don't wake up and and profess what is really going on, then we're going to be worshiping idols and not worshiping God and don't realize it. Verse 24, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. So are we going to serve and worship creation and not the creator? These individuals of whom Paul wrote chose to worship and serve creation more than their creator, and the consequences were devastating. Anytime we come to realize who God is but ignore it, it's going to be devastation for us. When we worship the creature, we are worshiping in the wrong direction. And before we know it, we will be far away from God. So, there are people, they worship their relationship or the person they're in a relationship with. And when that's not working out, that becomes so big. And before they know it, they walk away from God and they find themselves away from God and they're wondering, what happened? How did that happen? Because your relationship was more important than your relationship with God. Because your spouse to you was more important than God. And so you find yourself far away from God. We will always find ourselves far away from God when we worship things and people as opposed to worshiping God. It's something simple. But I don't think we have a good hold on it yet. And so we're experiencing this a lot. And if the end result of worshiping self and sinful pleasure is the abandonment by God, and abandonment by God don't mean God turned his back on you. It just means God says, I'm leaving you alone to your own devices. So God don't abandon us. He just leaves us to our own device. Why? Because God will always let us know love is a choice. Love is not something he's going to force. Always remember that. That goes on in your own home. For those of you that are married, just just it's a fact and and it's just what it is. We got the marriage lady coming in uh, Monday. She'll be here um, all, all of next week. She'll tell you that the bottom line is if you don't do it willingly, I don't want nobody to do stuff because I'm making them. You ain't going to do it. Cool. Because God himself, that's what he does with us. You're not going to love me? Okay. I love you anyhow. But if you don't love me, it's okay. And the bottom line is, love is, is, is something you have to choose to do. It can't be forced. God could have stepped in anytime he wanted while the, while the devil was trying to get Eve to eat that fruit. God could have stepped in right before Adam took the fruit from Eve and said, what are you doing? 
Don't you know you better not do what I told you? Do what I tell you to do and don't you do anything else if I destroy you. Y'all could have been the first abuser. (laughs) I brought you in this world. I can take you. You better not. You better love me and nobody else if you ever tried it again. He didn't do that. So I ain't doing that to nobody. Mm -mm. You're going to have to do it on your own. And that's every relationship. We better freely love one another because if it's not that, then it's not love. You can't make somebody do it. And that's what worship is all about. If you love God all because you love him, nobody got to tell you worship God. Nobody got to tell you that. What I always say, you love your husband, you make sure you do the thing that make him happy. Marriage counseling coming. The marriage counseling spirit is on me. You love your husband, you better make sure he's all excited when he get home. You love your wife, you know what she like, you make sure you do what she like. We can't be talking about we love, but we ain't showing it. For God so loved the world that he came out of heaven. He showed it. We keep thinking that you can just love but don't show it. No, sir. No, sir. We got to show that love. What is one of the worst consequences you can think of when it comes to being abandoned by God, God leaving you to your device. Whatever it is that you're going through, you're dealing with, whatever it is that you care more about than God, and God says, all right, I'm just going to leave you to your devices. What can happen? What, what can really happen to us if God does that to us? Because God is always worthy of worship, we must make him the object of our worship. Let us turn our worship in the right direction. I know we, I'm talking to church folks. Now, let me take that back. You don't want me to call you church people. Anytime you hear me say church people, it's not a good thing. So, Lord, forgive me. I'm not going to call you people church people. But church people is not a good word. Church people hurt people. But, but godly people is a whole different story. But I know we're all Christian, godly people here tonight. But you have to examine yourself at all times to see what prevents you from worshiping God. Because if something prevents you, then that's really what you've been worshiping. And so you have to examine that about yourself constantly. It's a constant thing. So we need to turn our worship in the right direction and and make sure we aren't caught up worshiping something else or someone else and, 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 and say we worship God. Refuse to worship self. Uh-huh. Refuse to worship self. Refuse to worship. Let me get you involved. Uh, let me take my time and get you involved. Anyone want to tell or give an example of what you think worship in self could be, but, it's, but, but, but we don't think about it. So don't give me an obvious worship self. Can anybody give me an example of what you think worship in self could be that we probably don't think about a lot of times? Anybody? Uh, worship in self. Yeah, go ahead. 
Okay. I look good today. All right. Okay. All right. That's, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. All right. Any Anyone else? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That that's called self-centeredness, so that's worshiping self. Yeah. Here's one that's subtle. You always got to do what you need to do and let God wait on what God needs for you to do. Think about that one. You will always make sure you got to do your stuff. But God's stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I get this. I get this. I know I got to do that. That's worshiping self. That's worshiping self. Here is the good one. Let me give you an example. This is a good one. I'm messing with you all tonight. I try to be kind to everyone. Here's what I will never do. I will never be more kind to anyone over my wife. So I'm going to be kind to everyone. But I'm not going to be more kind to anyone over my wife. So why are you saying that, preacher? It's the same principle with God. I'm not, I measure myself all the time to say, do I do this for this, but I don't do it for God? So for instance, Sister Monroe, if I see your car look dirty outside, I say, oh, Sister Monroe's car is dirty. Let me clean it up for her because she's been busy and her husband's been busy. Let me make sure her car clean. But I never clean my wife's car off. Not good. Not good. Yeah, exactly, Brother Henry. That's not good. Right? So so my point is, it means I'm cleaning my wife's car three, four times a week if I even look your car one day a week. That's what it means. Well, it's the same principle with God. I can't consider God my all in all and how I'm worshiping him, and he's everything to me, and all of this stuff, but he gets less than what I give everything else. That's what I'm saying. So if I'm going to be a worshiper, God has to get more than what everybody else get. i just let you in a secret. That's kind of how I live my life. God get more than everybody else. And I trickle down the line. My family's supposed to get more than everybody else. My church supposed to get more than everybody else. You just keep on trickling down. You got to prioritize it just that way. God got to get more than everybody else. Your family got to get more than everybody else. Your church got to get more than everybody else. Then you can spurs it out after that. If we're going to be true to the game. If we're going to be true to the game. Mm-hmm. So we need to turn ourselves towards the Lord. The Lord has to be the object of our worship. So in Psalms 100, 
learned this when we were little kids in school. The Bible says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that had made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endure it to all generations. I learned that thing, I think, since I was in second grade. That's how long I'm carrying that word with me. When you serve others and doing it for recognition, you are not in a good place. Are you serving the Lord for recognition? Are you serving the Lord for your own personal fulfillment? Because if we do that, it still make us self-centered. Still make us idol worshipers, worshiping ourselves. Or is our service that we're offering is a service of sacrifice of praise unto the Lord? So when you do things, do you do it with a smile saying, Lord, I sacrifice my service. I give my service to you, even though I'm not giving it directly to him. I'm serving him. And so when I go to do the will of God, when I go to serve my brethren and those that aren't even my brethren, am I doing it with a smile knowing I'm doing it unto the Lord? Serve the Lord with gladness. So the question is, how, all right, question, question in the house. How do you serve the Lord with gladness? Just, just asking. How do you serve the Lord with gladness? So one way of how you serve the Lord with gladness is when I come to church, it doesn't matter what day. When I come in the house of the Lord, I'm coming with gladness because why? I'm getting ready to serve the Lord. When you teach Sunday school, you're serving the Lord. When you usher, when you sing, when you play, when you, when you, when you just give and, and show hospitality, you're serving the Lord. But that's if you're serving the Lord. <laughs> because some people could be doing it for recognition. Some people can be doing it to for personal fulfillment. And so if you're doing it for recognition and doing it for personal fulfillment, you might not do it with gladness. Huh? Oh, yeah. I came home from work yesterday. Um, I don't know. Did I go to work? Yeah, I went to work. Came home early. <laughs> right? So I went to work, came home early. Got in the bed, put on my pajamas, got in the bed. But I set my alarm clock to like 530 because I had a Bible study at 615. Now, when I was going to my bed, I knew I was sick. 
But in my mind, Lord, you're going to wake me up with some strength to teach this Bible study. And I got up with gladness because I want to serve the Lord with gladness. When I go and knock on the door of my Bible study chart in my arm, my Bible in my arm, I'm glad. Are you kidding me? Serve the Lord with gladness. I'm not serving him with a sour face. I'm not serving him like, oh, this is so hard. I'm not serving him because I don't have a choice. I'm serving the Lord with gladness. Weenie, weenie, weenie. So listen to this. I'm serving the Lord with gladness. I shouldn't probably say this in front of my wife. But so next Saturday morning, the 30th, listen to this. We have our marriage meeting in the morning because next Saturday, next Friday, we have marriage in the evening. Please, all married people, I want you to come enjoy yourself. Next Friday, that's what I said, right? Friday? Well, we both days. So we have it Friday evening and then we have it Saturday morning. Now, here's the problem. My schedule keeps adjusting. So Saturday morning will probably go from 10 to 12, but I just found out that I have to attend this funeral now. The funeral viewing is from 9 to 11, and I think service start at probably 11. Then at noon in Secaucus, our good friend Michael Werbington, we're doing a wedding shower for him. That's my buddy. You, you all know he comes to church. Michael, yeah. I got to be here. Then I heard I'm supposed to be the MC for this other church service down in Haddonfield. <laughs> at 5 o'clock. Tone. And I didn't even blink. All I said is, I'm going to serve the Lord in gladness. So I don't know how I'm going to do it, but in my mind it's calculating. All right, so I can leave here at this time. I can leave there at that time, and I can do this and do that. And I'm calculating. My brain just keep on working. There was never a time where I'm thinking, well, maybe I just can't. I serve the Lord with gladness. I love serving the Lord. There's nothing better than this. Serve the Lord with gladness. Don't you worry about a thing. There's nothing better than serving the Lord. Let me go down swinging. That's it. For God I live and for God I die. This is why Paul says, you know, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Either way, you get me? It's Christ. We got to serve the Lord with gladness. When we serve others with the desire to please God in the process, the Lord accepts our worship of service as worship unto him. Can I tell you this too? There are things that I don't want to do, but I get past myself in a minute. <laughs> right? There's some things I don't want to do. So I message y'all. What I say, I have four things to do. Um, Saturday, one of the things I don't want to do, <laughs> I'm not tell you which one, one I don't want to do, but I'm going to do it with gladness. You will never know which one. If you follow me around all day Saturday, you will never know which one I don't want to do because I'm going to do it with gladness. The Lord knows which one. But remember, I tell you, that's one of the best thing about serving the Lord as children of God. 
he knows you don't want to do it. And so he understands when you will yourself to please him. We got to get that. Like when you will yourself to do something you don't want, you, you don't think God knows that? He shows up in your life in a special way when he knows you didn't want to do it, but you did it anyhow. But you didn't do it with an attitude, and you didn't do it for people to see that you didn't want. You did it because you were glad to serve the Lord. Try that one day. Do something you don't want to do unto the Lord, but do it with gladness. And you'll experience something you're like, oh, my goodness, because the Lord knows you didn't want to do it. And so he remembered when he was in the garden. I don't know if I could go through with this, but he went through with it anyhow. You see, he didn't want to go through with the whole garden. This is too much. The sins of the world is riding on me. But nevertheless, I'll do it anyhow. And so when we get that attitude that I'm going to do it no matter what with gladness. As we continue to read Psalms 100, the passage reveal absolute focus on God in every action taken. We are to come before his presence with singing. We are to enter his gates and his courts with praise. We are to be thankful unto him and bless his name. Again, worship is all about being where he is and being pointed in his direction how can we make sure our lives are reflecting well on his name the psalmist wrap up the song with a few compelling reasons to make our worship all about him the first reason for us to make our worship all about him the lord is good the Lord is good. That just put a smile on my face. The Lord. You say that to yourself and see if it don't put a smile on your face. The Lord is good. Hey, the Lord is good. Mama Allen know the Lord good. Maybe some of y'all don't get to the place where y'all know the Lord is good. But when you say the Lord is good, it put a smile on your face. Because you should know that he's good. Why? Because you know better than anybody all your experiences with the Lord. And there are things that you didn't tell anybody else, but you know. And so when you say the Lord is good, it's like you wink at him. It's like a wink. The Lord is good. Right, mom? It's like a wink. Because you know it's a lot more than what you're saying. Oh, it's a whole lot more than what you're saying when you say the Lord is good. Oh, the Lord is good. It's a whole lot more than what I'm saying when I say the Lord is good. And you know, if you say the Lord is good and you can think back of all the things that the Lord has been good to you about, you will say it too. Oh God, you are certainly good. No matter what, that's why they say, for you are good all the time and all the time you're good. Oh my goodness. He is good. Hmm. And so we worship him because he's He's good. Uh-huh. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, I'll read in different version. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But when we will see everything with perfect clarity, 
all that I know is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. So this is the thing that the scripture that talked about. Now we all see through a, gar- a glass darkly. And so what it means is everything we see and understand, we don't fully understand it. Everything we see and understand in this day and age, we still don't have the full understanding. Because we're imperfect people. And so we can't see things completely right now. But the day will come when we become like him. We shall see him as he is because we will be exactly like him. We will have this incorruptible body and we will be just like him. Then we will see things clearly like he always saw things. God is good. He sure is. We are not able to understand everything with our finite mind. God's ways are far above our ways and his purpose far exceeds our understanding. Yes, trusting amid tragedy calls for faith, but in him our hope will never fail. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me here on earth. You will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. That's John 16:33. God is telling us, listen, he overcame the world, we will overcome the world. The second reason for us to make our worship all about him, his mercy is everlasting. Uh-huh. His mercy is everlasting. His mercy will never run out. The King James Version uses uh, mercy while not other translations use either love, while other translations use loving kindness. His mercy or loving kindness lasts forever. <coughs> if there is one thing you can count on to never change in this life, it is the fact that God's Love never changes. God will always love you. Nothing you can do can change God's love for you. It is constant. You cannot be good enough to earn more of his love, and you cannot be bad enough to cause him to stop loving you. Woo. That's big. You cannot be good enough to earn more of his love. So you're getting... 100% of his love, whether you're saved or unsaved. 100%. So, because I'm a challenger, and I like to challenge you, are you loving people even though they're not loving you? Are they getting 100% of your love even though? Here is all you say. I'm striving. I'm striving. <laughs> just say that. Just say that. Say, I'm striving. I'm striving. I know I got to get there. I'm striving to love people 100% even if they don't love me. Mm. <laughs> well, the good news is God has set the bar and we know what we're supposed to strive for. That's all. We know what we're supposed to strive for. Hmm. The third reason for us to make our worship all about him is truth endure it to all generations. When reading this portion of verse 5, some will jump to the conclusion that the truth of God and is forever settled. Doctrine of scripture will endure to all generations. And though that is true, the truth of that statement is not necessarily what the psalmist had in mind. Yes, the word of God is forever settled in heaven. 
we can count on the truth of his word and know it will never change. But the psalmist wanted us to understand the Hebrew word, like you say, means firm, steadfast, faithful. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generation. The Lord is forever faithful. He is faithful to his word and his promises. And the fact that his faithfulness extends from generation to generation tells us that the provision of God that was on display for those in previous generations can be received in this generation. And so God's love will forever extend to every generation to come. Because God is always worthy of worship, let us make him the object of our worship. For truly we were made to worship only him. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Uh-huh. That's all, that always get me to reasonable. Your worship is reasonable. Your servitude in the church is reasonable. How you treat people in, 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 in just thinking of God and doing it unto the Lord, it's reasonable. And so I close here. Murmuring and complaining marked the wilderness wandering of the Israelites. The people became fed up with their uncomfortable living conditions and their lack of food and water. These moments caused them to think back on life in Egypt and long for safety and security of their former lives. <coughs> you know where I'm going with this. It's, it's amazing how we can come to God and life happens and we come to God and we don't expect life to happen anymore. We expect for everything to be good. And as soon as something is not going our way, we start murmuring and complaining. The murmuring Israelites often failed to remember it was the Lord who brought them out of Egypt and had promised them a land of plenty and blessings beyond imagination. Unfortunately, their dissatisfaction and doubt, their dissatisfaction and doubt were what led their 40 years of wandering. Remember we said the, the children of Israel wandered in, 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 in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years. They, they just wandered and, and some died off and all that stuff. They wandered. They wandered all because of their dissatisfaction and doubt. We have to thank God even when it's going wrong. We have to thank God even when things are not going good. Because if we don't do that, we're going to start murmuring and complaining, which means you become dissatisfied. And when you walk around murmuring and complaining, you become dissatisfied. It let doubt creep into your heart and creep into your mind. And when doubt creep in, then faith is no longer around or faith is barely existing. And before you know it, you're going to find yourself doing things that you shouldn't be doing. You're going to be wandering away from God. But now Moses had died. The generation that had refused to believe God to give them the land had also passed. And Joshua had been enjoying many years of conquest, triumph, and God's bountiful blessing. The tribes had inherited the promised land and each had claimed their right 
to the sections of land designated for their future generations. As Joshua neared the end of his life, he thought back over the miraculous exodus from Egypt and the conquest of Canaan. His mind wandered over the wilderness wandering and the numerous challenges they had faced. He had watched God provide. He had beheld God's deliverance and each step along the way he had been a first-hand witness of the Lord's unfailing love for his people. And as his mind wandered, Joshua became concerned, listen to this, for the future and what God's people may do once Joshua was off the scene. He thought if the people turned from God before, they could do it again. They must make up their minds and set their hearts upon God alone. Joshua called the people together at Shechem and preached his farewell sermon. It is the recounted God's bless. It is to recount God's blessing. He reminded the Israelites of God's promise to Abraham and of their ancestors Isaac and Jacob. He told them again of God's call to Moses and Aaron and how they led the people out of Egypt after God's judgment fell on the firstborn. He reminded the people of how the Lord helped them defeat Jericho along the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, and others. And not only did he remind them of their victories in war, but also of the bountiful blessing they had, they had awaited for them. After highlighting the blessing, Joshua paused and took a deep breath. Emotions overwhelmed him and his voice began to quiver as he poured his heart out to the people. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day who you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Worship is a choice because sometimes you don't feel like doing it. Sometimes we have to tell our flesh to do what it doesn't naturally want to do because it is in flux, not wanting to do it. So Joshua's final plea was for them to make a choice. Choose the direction you will take. If you turn in the direction of false gods, you will be led far away from the one true God and find your blessings stripped away and the promises forfeited. So instead, choose to serve the Lord. Make him the object of your worship. So we're supposed to worship even when we don't feel like it. And you got to tell yourself that sometimes. I'm going to church now. I don't feel like worshiping. It's okay. It's okay to say I'm going to church but I don't feel like worshiping. But I'm going to worship. You, you start fighting with your flesh. I'm going to church. I don't feel like worshiping tonight. I'm going to church. How about this? Ladies, I know sometimes you say I'm, I don't even feel like talking to nobody tonight. I don't feel like having nobody in my face. There's times when I'm sure you come to church feeling like that. 
because you feel like you got to be faithful to God, but you don't, you're just not in the mood to be mixing and mingling with nobody. And you got to tell yourself, but too bad, self, I'm going to do it anyhow. I'm going to do it anyhow because I'm the temple of God. I'm here to be a worshiper of God. I'm not just here just to go through the motions and make myself the idol. I am going to worship the Lord. And so we have to start talking to ourselves to say what we will do. You can't let the flesh rule you and keep you from being who you ought to be in God. Keep you from worshiping God. Keep you from being empowered by his spirit. You just got to tell that flesh. Back up. It's like prayer sometimes when you don't feel like praying. I don't feel like praying, but I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray till I feel like, like I connected with God. Anybody have any questions tonight? Anything going through your brain, even though I can tell you got some stuff going through your brain tonight. What do you got going through your brain tonight? Brother Scott, you can stop the tape so it, it, it doesn't become an issue. You got to do all that stuff. But anybody have any